Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome to this month's episode. This month we have a special interview featuring somebody that we've actually talked to a bit before, the soon-to-be doctor, Mirko Ancelotti. Uh, he's very close to his defense, so we can congratulate him a little bit in advance, I hope. Um, Ava got the chance to interview him on the 9th of February after he had a seminar with the UAC. Uh, and we have talked to him before, but not much about his own work. So this was a nice update, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. I am very pleased, very happy to have today with us uh, Mirko Antilotti from Uppsala University here. He was with us uh, last month giving a seminar at the UAC Seminar Series. And today I have the pleasure to interview him to learn a little bit more about his background and how having such a special background in philosophy and ethics, he ended up working on the specific topic of antibiotic resistance. I think this is going to be a super interesting conversation. Thank you, Mirko, for being with us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience and talk a little bit about the background, your background? Yes. Thank you, Eva. Thank you for your kind invitation. It's nice to meet you again. Um, my background is in philosophy, as you just said. I have a master's degree in philosophy with a specialization in bioethics. Afterwards, I start working at Uppsala University at the Center for Research Ethics and Bioethics, first in the ethics of technology uh, with a project on synthetic biology when I was a research assistant. And then I start my PhD because uh, there was this possibility with an available project to work on the ethical issues around the antibiotic resistance. And uh, I have um, made it my project, uh, yeah, which now is in between or in both uh, public health and uh, ethics. What uh, kind of uh, ethics or philosophy work did you start working on early on in your scientific career? I was particularly interested in uh, beginning of life issues. So concepts regarding the potentiality within early stages of human life and what kind of uh, rights, if one can use that kind of terminology, or what kind of protection, what kind, how we should look at uh, well, embryos or even earlier stages of uh, life. And what this assessment is not only technical, of course, it's not only medical, it comes with uh, our views of what it is uh, life at its beginning. And my conclusion about that very shortly were that uh, although till a certain point, um, there is not a person, there is a human life, but there is not a person there. Still that so not yet person is important because it matters to person, to who is alive who, uh, and people was feelings, was emotions uh, matters. This doesn't mean that there is an obligation to uh, bring about life just as a theoretical construction that I made on the, built on the work of many other and better probably authors before me. 
that and uh, about the potentiality argument and the potentiality of early stages of life. Mm-hmm. So as I understand, you have always kind of been more interested on the bio side of ethics and philosophy and how to bring together the, I would say, somewhat abstract thought of philosophy, but to the more understandable and the more closer realm, which is the life sciences, in a sense. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Indeed, uh, since I was a, a student in, in Italy, my majoring was in uh, bioethics. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the, I would say, maybe ask you about the challenges of being trained in a philosophy way or in a philosophical context and then applying that into more the biology realm? What are some of the hurdles of trying to integrate these two aspects? Well, um, I think <laughs> that the major problems regards this scientific mentality and uh, uh, the problems of constraining one's thought and also one's um, possibility of expression of conveying one's thought into certain frameworks that are understood from on the other side. On the other side are those that don't have uh, an education in philosophy, for instance. We philosophers, and most notably, I guess, continental <laughs> philosophers, we're not really well known for our capacity to stick to uh, methods. That's more something that has been um, developed by the yeah the, the Anglo-Saxon, so to say, the American tradition of philosophy, or something also here in Sweden that is in that school. But continental philosophy is uh, different. But I learned, I get closer to the field of public health, and because my interest has also been not only on theory but also on how this can affect the practice and the other way around. So our practice can inform or influence theory. Yes, I would say that probably I'm a pragmatic (laughs) philosopher (laughs) or pragmatic person. Yes, so you kind of want to see the applications of of the thought process that you go behind and the theory of of it all. But I think it's very interesting that there's people like you that are trying to bring these two realms together, right? Like how does the practical and the reality of life affects the theory of it and how does the theory can affect the practice uh, of it as well. It's uh, really interesting and specifically that you work with this within the topic of antibiotic resistance. So if we go a little bit forward, you were working on bioethics in particular and then it come up this opportunity to work on the aspect of ethics in antibiotic resistance what uh, apart from you know the practicalities of the opportunity being there of you doing a phd on this what theoretically drove you to actually take on that challenge i would say that it started with the opportunity mm-hmm. uh, it started with the opportunity i uh, was not very even well knowledgeable about the field. I knew that antibiotic resistance exists, but I would say that I had a very lay person knowledge and interest in uh, the argument. But when this opportunity came, I got, of course, interested. I started uh, reading about it. I wrote my own project and uh, yeah, I was caught <laughs> by this completely. I found it terribly interesting because there is many ethically uh, 
challenges, many ethical issues that are interesting uh, around that. And I always been interested about uh, the tension between the individual ethical issues and how these are mirrored or these are influenced or influenced by the collective ethical issues. And this theme is very prominent when we talk about antibiotic resistance, which then I also approach because that's part of my project, also from um, another point of view, applying social sciences methods to it, because I want to learn also, and uh, a PhD is a part of education, and I want to learn also about that other side. Also, not to be um, a naive <laughs> uh, continental philosopher in Sweden. <laughs> I understand what you mean. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of uh, the projects that you have been working on? Because you are very close to your defense, so you have had a few years to dive deep into into the topic. And we talked to you back in 2018 on the live episode of the podcast on the SciFest. But since then, you have been quite prolific. I was reading a little bit of your work, and I would like you to share with our audience also what is your latest uh, work and results. Yes, the title of my thesis, I say it because I think that uh, it is to a certain extent self-explanatory. It is uh, antibiotic resistance and with the method investigation of uh, human individual behavior and uh, responsibility. And uh, I've been investigating these uh, themes through social sciences method from a public health perspective and uh, the multi method comes from the fact that I applied qualitative methods to this, study this topic but also then quantitative methods all on the Swedish population so first focus groups uh, to explore people's attitude perceptions beliefs which matters a lot uh, about antibiotic resistance and antibiotic use, but not only antibiotic use in the sense of uh, treatment with antibiotics, but other, other action decisions that we take, other behaviors that can have an influence on antibiotic resistance that can uh, make it worse, basically. And there were very interesting findings. And among these findings, there was this uh, major finding that people seem to care a lot about antibiotic resistance, but one can never tell because one of the major biases in qualitative um, studies are that people may, or at least the researcher may be afraid that uh, participants are trying to say the right thing, to look good in front of other participants or to please the researchers and so forth. So we try to understand a bit more whether people could really care and to what extent they will care when uh, they have to take into consideration other factors that matters like cost for themselves, for instance, or what kind of uh, effort is required from them. We investigated through quantitative methods, through this creature's experiment, that is a method that allows researchers to weigh the decisions of uh, the participants, of those that respond in um, scenarios where they have to, for instance, we said, okay, you have the possibility to choose between antibiotics and now you can take an antibiotic and contribute little, medium or highly to antibiotic resistance. So of course, everyone will go for the antibiotic and contribute little to antibiotic resistance. If this could be possible to know, of course, we made a scenario. But then you have to take, for instance, an antibiotic that costs a lot of money or that uh, bring about side effects or that has an high failure rate is a way uh, to understand 
what are people's preferences and the weight of these preferences for them. And still we had the same result that people seems to really care about antibiotic resistance, about their own contribution to antibiotic resistance. This is because they feel a responsibility for that. And uh, that's the second part of my research. I try to understand how they understand this responsibility and how this should be understood by us, also theoretically, also from a moral point of view. People tend to understand their responsibility for antibiotic resistance in terms of uh, most in terms of what they can do, not of what they have already caused with their behavior, but what is in their power to do to make the situation better. And in my last study that is currently um, under review, I analyzed this uh, conceptually, this concept of uh, individual moral responsibility for antibiotic resistance. So as I understand, then people are able to to understand and, and internalize that a personal discrete choice can have an effect on more the global and the community level and that therefore they are morally responsible to act one way or another to not contribute so much to that bad outcome that would affect everybody. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. As I understood, your work is based on focus interviews. So you have talked and you have heard a lot of people and different people talk about the issue of antibiotic resistance and what do they understand or don't understand. Do you feel like they are aware of both the current and short-time effects that antibiotic resistance can have as well as the future possible risks? I don't know very well about that because I never test properly knowledge of people and uh, knowledge about the short term and the long term. Once you invite them to think about the consequences of uh, non-judicious, non-proper use of antibiotics, they immediately see it also in moral terms, something that is bad, not only from public health perspective, not only from a medical point of view, but as something unjust, unfair towards the others and also the future generations, of course, but also towards people around you that may be more vulnerable than you, that may need antibiotics working mm -hmm. more than you do. It's very interesting and, of course, it's a very happy result, I would say, that uh, to realize that people do care. So we are now in the situation where your data and your studies, they show that people do care, do realize that there is a problem, but still it feels like perhaps there is a gap in between them knowing this, us trying to talk to them about it, and the outcome of it. Because still we know that there is a lot of you know, misuse or uh, non-proper use of antibiotics. So where do you think that we could perhaps put more effort and more work to try to to get to a better place when it comes to the actual outcomes of the knowledge that people have? Well, I have a couple of ideas <laughs> about that. But, uh, well, I must say that uh, I, I need to work more <laughs> on the field. I mean, but uh, I have a couple of, uh, of ideas about that. One of my results, qualitative result, is that people would really like to learn more and listen more from their doctors, from their family doctors. Mm -hmm. Our health systems and uh, the way things work are made in a way that uh, doctors, uh, even the doctor that is 
about that has already prescribed you antibiotics has very little time for you. And uh, there is not really time for uh, physicians, for antibiotic prescribers to uh, make you understand why it is very important that you use antibiotics properly that or that uh, we wait two, three days for writing a prescription. This may be done, but it's not explained to you why. And uh, people would really love to listen, to, to hear more from their uh, family doctors. And I am sure that also doctors would like to spend a bit more time with their patients. But this is not something that can be fixed going to the doctor and say, okay, now you have to be more talkative and more communicative. It is something that has to do with the organization of the health system and the time that each doctor has for each patient. So mm -hmm. it's something more structural. Mm -hmm. And therefore we're talking about money, <laughs> policy decisions. Um, well, another idea that I have, and this is not a finding, it's more of a, what is my proposal based on, uh, is not completely speculative, but it has not been proved uh, in, uh, through studies. Another idea is that uh, I think that to use also moral categories in communication about the importance of using antibiotics properly and also of other behaviors that can affect antibiotic resistance, like traveling to a country known to have a lot of high numbers when it comes to antibiotic resistance and not taking due um, preventive measures before or during the travel, like getting vaccinated or what you hit, how you hit it and all the rest or other behaviors that are of relevance. I think that to include a moral component about the wrongness of certain behavior may have effect. Also may have effect because although we don't have already, I think, social norms developed to guide our behaviors about proper use of antibiotics or judicious behavior with regards to antibiotic resistance, we already have categories in which this can fall. One of these categories, for instance, represented by what we think about our behavior when it comes to the environment. Yeah, so I got this sense of this that you are explaining right now when I was reading through your research. And I found it particularly interesting because, as you know, I'm interested in communication for, since a long time ago. And now that I work on antibiotic resistance, I work actively day by day of like, these ideas of how to create, you know, AMR campaigns, how do uh, big organizations like um, the WHO work to try to bring awareness and uh, now working for the Uppsala Health Summit as well, how do you change awareness into actual behavior change or actions that will actually result in the reduced use of antibiotics or the proper use of antibiotics? And I find that your proposal or your thoughts of including this moral component in the communication efforts is not so crazy or is not wrong to do because I feel like a lot of the efforts in communications that are done right now they focus a lot in the facts it's like this is the data this is what it means but without really focusing on what does that mean in terms of are we behaving in the right way or in the wrong way so more on the moral aspect of it and I realized that I had not really thought about that until I read your work because then you put it into this context that, yeah, maybe we should appeal to to the 
I would say feelings more than more than data in a in a way, right? That's how I see it. Yes, I, I mean we start with the data, and the data are very worrying, <laughs> and then we have to decide how to communicate to people the importance of their behavior. And there are different messages that should go through. Some are more technical because some people are very interested in the numbers and want to understand how serious this problem is. And we need to talk about the facts. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very important also because it's uh, the basis. I mean, it's a scientific investigation that starts ringing the alarm. That's absolutely important. But then the communication should go beyond that and it does of course in the sense we know that people are very often uh, more sensitive to narratives than to uh, numbers mm -hmm. not necessarily because they don't understand the numbers but because they don't feel the numbers exactly. mm -hmm. but they can feel the experiences they can change something in their behavior in their understanding mm -hmm. of a situation if they feel it more mm -hmm. um, of course uh, it, this need to be done with a bit of we have to be careful and responsible we don't want to stigmatize people who need to take antibiotics but that's not the point my results don't go in that direction the people think that it's important to avoid the problem of stigmatization but really see the importance for people who need antibiotics that there are antibiotics for them. And if you need to take antibiotics for most of your life, that's okay. It's not you, the person should not take antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And people understand that actually it's for these people that we should keep preserving antibiotics and do an effort. This should be communicated properly also, for instance, in these terms. Isn't, there are different ways of communicating mm -hmm. the same message. Mm -hmm. Yes. On your transition from being, you know, a uh, ethicist or a philosopher that was focused yes already on the biological side of things into AMR I'm curious to know what are the things that were more difficult to you when you started to apply your thoughts your the theories or the ideas in morality and philosophy into antibiotic resistance for you personally on your journey as a researcher and as a scientist what has been a challenge for you statistics <laughs> Statistics has been uh, not a problem, but the most difficult for me because I was not prepared. My education is in uh, something else. I could talk a bit about Kant, but really if, until a few years ago, I didn't know the difference between a mean and a median. Now I do. <laughs> because <laughs> I had to learn this and much more. But that's why I also, uh, to a certain extent, I would say to a good extent, I could influence the direction of my project and I want to learn because I felt ignorant. I, I'm still, I'm ignorant. <laughs> I know that I don't know many things, but I know a bit more than before, mm -hmm. than start, before starting this uh, doctoral project. And for instance, I, I applied the uh, health uh, belief model in my first study, and that was uh, challenging, but still more within the realm of my possibilities and what I already knew mm -hmm. from my previous education. But uh, about statistics, I was uh, 
completely uh, new to the field. And uh, a discrete choice experiment is uh, not the most simple quantitative methods that can be applied to elicit people's preferences. Mm -hmm. And I had the fortune to work with people that were both prepared and very, very patient. <laughs> and uh, I could learn a bit. I understand. Uh, what about... Um... Did you feel like you had to really deepen your knowledge on more the biology side of antibiotic resistance in order to understand your data and make uh, conclusions from your data? Mm, no, it was not very uh, necessary. I had mostly just to get rid of a common misconception about the, uh, the medical use of antibiotics, about uh, the mechanism of antibiotic resistance, but uh, um, it was not necessary. It's something that I would like to learn more about, actually, but uh, it was not necessary for discussing the results or for uh, asking the questions to know well or to know more about these biolog biological aspects. Mm -hmm. Based on your uh, research, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about antibiotic resistance? Well, among lay people, I think that uh, is uh, the idea that uh, it is the body that become resistant to antibiotics and not the bacteria. Mm -hmm. I had a few questions in my studies about uh, this. Now I don't remember correctly um, for sure, but I think about 93-94% of my respondents were wrong about this question. They answered that it's the body that becomes resistant to antibiotics. Of course, it depends from how the questions are asked. Mm -hmm. uh, if you highlight the possibility of differences between the body and the bacteria, for instance, putting two questions in the same page so that people can see, ah, okay, it's a trick. Can I understand? Probably you get other numbers, but people, also people in healthcare, in my experience, uh, tend to think that is the uh, body become resistant. And I don't think that this is due to, you know, um, a very uh, nice understanding of the human body as uh, uh, living in harmony with bacteria. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's not really that, that they will see the bacteria as being an intrinsic part of the body and therefore they say the body becomes resistant because that's not really the issue is when a foreign bacteria comes and is resistant to the antibiotic yes indeed and in the literatures uh, these issues discussed some don't see this as a big problem in the sense that not everyone has to be doctor or biologist to understand the beauty of the antibiotic resistance mechanism and it's true because I don't do either. <laughs> but uh, I think that there is a risk in uh, underestimating the importance of people understanding that is the bacteria that become resistant. Mm -hmm. And risk that there is, in my opinion, is that people may see this as a personal problem. Nowadays, I read some uh, interviews of elderly people that think that uh, they shouldn't take big uh, precautions about uh, COVID-19 mm -hmm. because uh, it is their life. They live their life in light of their own values. And uh, if uh, they will get it and if it will bring bad consequences, even the worst consequences possible, they're ready for that because at least they have lived their life in light of their own. 
values mm -hmm. are, the way they think about themselves. And this can apply, of course, also to antibiotic resistance. It is me. It's yes. me that they will going to pay for the consequences in case. And I'm ready for that. The same kind of reasoning when you drink, when you smoke, uh, and so forth. But antibiotic resistance doesn't work really this no. way. As COVID-19 doesn't work. Yeah, way. exactly. I I found, instead of old people, I found myself in this narrative and having this discussion with young people that they would say like, oh, I'm young, I'm healthy, COVID is not going to affect me so badly, so it doesn't matter. I just go about my day and I don't have like elderly family and I don't visit anybody. And I, I feel like they fail to put into the equation that that concept that when you are part of the transmission, you are part of the problem. So I see how the parallels between here, COVID and behaviors and antibiotic resistance, especially if they feel like the resistance is something that happens to them and it cannot be shared in, in a sense. Yes, uh, that's exactly the point. And people ask to understand that, but we use this word, understand, that seems to understand the concepts, to fill the knowledge gap. It's not only that, that is needed, yeah. of course. Um, but then uh, you have to make sense of this so if it has to change behavior. That's why we know that there are other factors that need to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. The beliefs, the attitude, the, the changing health behavior of people takes more than filling the knowledge gap. And of course, then one has to take into account, mostly when we talk about antibiotic resistance of the socioeconomic factors. Yeah, the opportunity has to be there and it has to be provided somehow. Like it's not yes. just about knowing about it and being motivated to do it. It's about being able to do it in in the reality <laughs> that we live in. Definitely. It's very, very interesting uh, connection between, you know, the ethical understanding of the problem and the communication side and how we can actually work towards not just better understanding, but a be people making better sense of it and therefore also acting towards it and then perhaps getting the people that can make the substrate for the behaviors to change possible that they also know how important the, this is in, in general and what are the, the factors that hindrance that uh, behavior change in the topic. I think we're going to start wrapping up the interview but before we go we always like to ask our interviewees a um, very particular question which is uh, what do you think is missing on AMR research? And if you have any specific type of wish list, we are trying to gather all this and someday we're going to present this to someone <laughs> hoping for, for, for some answers. Uh, yeah, what is your wish list in the AMR field and uh, research topics? Um, well, uh, uh, that's, that's a difficult question. <laughs> if I have to wish for something, I would wish for doctors to have more time for their patients and this would increase i think a lot trust in the health system would increase the quality of care in general and then also when it comes to uh, the discourse of proper antibiotic use and then uh, less burden on antibiotic resistance let's say 
I, uh, my idea of including the moral contents in communication is not something that, yeah, I think that perhaps I could put it in my wish list. Also because uh, if communication from different parts in campaigns, uh, doctor-patient communication, if this could be included a bit more, not to moralize the field, but if this could be included a bit, in communication, I think that could bring about results relatively fast in the mm. sense that to change the socioeconomic situation, socioeconomic factors take long time. Yeah, it would be good if more money would be invested in uh, healthcare, but in general in uh, social structures that can facilitate mm -hmm. uh, the creation of uh, better circumstances for behaving more correctly and more judiciously to know more, this takes a lot of time. And for instance, could start with educating children in school about mm -hmm. health behavior. That might be an idea. But um, the uh, possibility of um, changing you know, social norms, and then uh, social norms are those that tell you how you should behave because the other think that <laughs> there is something right to do and something that is wrong to do. This can change a bit faster, I think. If we are able to implement this, perhaps changes in the way we communicate about it, we can get people right now that maybe in six months' time will have to face a course of antibiotics to behave in a different way if they are able to understand how wrong or right their behaviors could be around the topic. I would say there's a lot of good potential for, for change here. Uh, so I, I do hope that your wish list, both for more time of, pa of doctors with patients and in the topic of bringing up more the moral aspect into the communication, I see them as feasible things. Perhaps the doctor's time, it's something that in, it requires more resources in a sense, but changing the communication practices should not take that much <laughs> actually no it wouldn't uh, and uh, i mean there are different channels it's not necessarily that is the public campaigns of mm -hmm. course also public campaigns but there are many channels if uh, uh, like uh, i don't know if a good movie will come out you know a big production with big names that, that uh, talk about this mm -hmm. that will probably uh, bring about a lot of thinking about this and then all the, the consequences that will bring about in the press and the other media talking about this argument, things can be, communication can be also pop. It amplifies it, definitely. That's a very good idea. Maybe we should pitch it to uh, some big movie studio, an idea to make a, of course, like, you know, it is true. Like there's been a lot of also health issues that have been put into the light, maybe better or worsely done you know like a AIDS epidemic or other type of issues that have been publicly in maybe we can learn something from that and get an antibiotic resistant movie that is is good <laughs> to people but to a good one a good one that'd be nice <laughs> um all right Mirko it was super super enjoyable to talk to you and before we really close up the interview I want to give you the opportunity to just tell to our audience whatever you want to tell them <laughs> Is there anything you would like to tell them <laughs> about your future uh, projects, your future ideas, uh, something that you would like them to think about or anything? It's your time. 
Well, no, I don't know. I don't really have a, a final message. If not that, yeah, the, the importance of behaving in a certain way has to be not only understood rationally through the data like that tell us how worrying is the situation, but also uh, through other channels of communication. The the last decade, that social scientists have been doing such an amazing work. And uh, I hope that more bridges could be mm-hmm. done, made between the different parts involved in uh, trying to fight <laughs> or trying to mitigate antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. threats. Yeah, that's very important. And that's what we work actively every day. As you say, build those bridges and try to find common ground. And uh, I think the participation or the aspect of the social sciences in to the antibiotic resistance is actually what, if anything, what is going to make it change. Because if we have to rely solely on the idea that we can make new antibiotics or we can stop the bacteria from becoming resistant, we are not going to get anywhere because biologically that doesn't work. So I don't think we can get any way anywhere that is a good place without including the social sciences into it. So... I'm very happy to live yeah in the in the times we live in today. <laughs> yes, and I think that we should believe a bit, trust a bit public. Yeah. Think that involving the public is not just a waste of time or something nice to say. The public is the ultimate, you know, user of the antibiotics. If we want antibiotics to work, it's because someone someday is gonna need to use them. So I think it's only right to also involve them into keeping them working. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much, Mirko, for being Thank with you. us one more time. And I hope to keep an eye on your future studies and your work. And I'm sure we're going to learn a lot into into the topic if you continue working on it, of course. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Welcome back, everyone. I particularly really enjoy this interview, but I'm curious to know, Jenny, um, what do, you, what do you think about Mirko's uh, background and work now that we know a little bit more about him? I thought it was really fun to hear an update from Mirko. I really enjoyed talking to him last time we did speak to him. It was a live interview that we did before, so it was nice to kind of hear you get to delve in a bit deeper on some of the, the more background stuff in his work. And just his general perspective, I thought, is very fascinating. It's very... Um, I mean, hearing like what he worked with from the beginning and how he ended up in AMR and just these differences that we like, I didn't know about in, um, in philosophy, like this concept of the continental philosophy versus, uh, I also really liked something that he brought up. It was a very optimistic viewpoint kind of, of this whole, you know, people want to do better. People want to do the right thing and they want to, they care about making good choices, Mm -hmm. but the focus is more about what you can do in the future, make these good choices rather than, you know, who screwed up before. And I think that's a nice way to look at this of like, it's really important to know what hasn't worked before and what's been a problem, mm-hmm. but it's so important in this case, when you're talking and communicating outwards to the general public about what can we do to do better yeah, rather than what went wrong. And I think it was a really nice like focus that this seems to be appealing to people, that this seems to be like a central thing that they want to focus on. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive outlook. I'm, uh, I can't not consider myself an optimist. And to me, the results are like, yeah, I mean, people want to be good. People want to do good. And people are even willing to sacrifice. Yeah. 
for the common good in a sense that's how I took the results which of course is maybe a little bit of a, a naivety from my side that this is what I would like the world to be in a sense but it, I yeah. think his results are clear like people care about what is needed to be done in order to get to a better place which is really good and I think this kind of this optimism of you know what people want to do for each other basically ties in a bit to some of the situations that are going on in the world right now we see this being tested in a sense of how much are we willing to give up of personal freedoms to help other people mm-hmm. and uh while it's easy to get hung up on the people that aren't maybe being so helpful mm-hmm. it's, it's good to remember that the, i'm sure the vast majority of people are willing to help this starts uh a little bit into something we were commenting before, a bit related with the point that Mirko brought up that uh, the biggest misconception that he sees around in people when it comes to bacterial infections and antibiotic resistance is that is the body itself that gets resistant to antibiotics, which is not the biological truth. And then we were talking about how this view of individuality versus the community. Yeah, the collective good versus yeah. the individual's. And then if that does view might actually uh, modify or really guide how you are going to act towards the problem and towards others mm-hmm. and towards the actions that you might take to reduce the problem. So and we were discussing like, does people actually need to know the biological truth that is not the body, the one that becomes resistant, but it's the bacteria in the body. Does actually need to be the case or can we move forward? Or can people behave the right way without having the right information about that? Yeah. Um, so when you guys were talking about that, it made me think about previous discussions we've had with Dr. Catherine Will talking about how it can be inappropriate to not tell the patient or the the public the full truth in some cases, or how there's a there's an, a thought process of you know we need to inform, we need to be very open, we need to not just try to steer people, say something to get people to do the thing we want them to do, but rather inform them so they make their own decisions about it, and. I mean, it's a really interesting mix, and I I don't think there's a clear answer here. I mm-hmm. think, I mean, ideally, of course, you want people to be informed and make the decisions that you want them to make. You kind of want to convince them of the right action by informing them. But there's so much to know, and there's so much going on, and it's the constant thing, and it's very hard to be clear all the time. And it's absolutely not that people are stupid. It's more a matter of, you know, I mean, we're experts in this field, but we don't know everything about a different field. And in this case, for example, Mirko did a very interesting work and he says himself, I don't know everything about this biologically. It wasn't important to me. It wasn't important to my work that I knew the biological information about this. He knew a little bit, he knew the most important parts, but he didn't need to know everything. And I think we kind of get to this point where like, there's a limit to how much knowledge you can have. We have to kind of balance out, you know, how much weight can we put on a person of information, but actually get out the effect that we need is that we need a change in society. We need people to act differently. And a lot of people want to act differently. They want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting balance. And I, I feel like it's a really interesting discussion to have after talking to somebody who works with philosophy, yes. because it's, it's a very philosophical discussion. It is have. a very philosophical discussion. It goes into the realm of like, you know, also what's right, what's wrong, all the ethics of it. And... Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Who gets to say that this is the action that we need to have? Yeah, exactly. It's um, what it could be the right thing for one person might be the wrong thing for another person. And that also ties in how do you put personal values into it? It is definitely a deep, deep discussion with a lot of nuances as well. And you can go on forever. I could talk about this for an hour. (laughs) 
But talking about philosophy, I think there is a point for us to maybe mention that uh, Mirko kept bringing up a couple of times continental philosophy during the interview. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to show up my big knowledge gap or that I have forgotten about philosophy <laughs> when I studied in high school. I uh, never knew. <laughs> I couldn't really understand continental philosophy versus what or why he was mentioning. I kind of got a little bit the meaning of it because of the context. But then I, we went back to it and I read a little bit more about what continental philosophy is. And it's basically he's um, comparing continental philosophy versus the British or the American philosophers. That's kind of like the two, the dichotomy that is talked about in philosophy. The British and the American, they are known for practicing, at least in the 19th and 20th century, a more analytical philosophy, which is a philosophy that works with induction and with methods. And I think the continental philosophers had a different way of working and a different way of philosophing around. And because Mirko is now a philosopher that is has brought into the area of biology and public health and research in itself, which is not per se what philosophers do. He had to learn to think in this methodological way. And I think that's what he was mentioning and what he was meaning when he was saying, like, you know, this continental philosophy of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> or the way I interpret it, which may have been completely wrong, but the, what hit me was a little bit more of this also, you know, what are you trying to, who are you trying to talk to? Mm -hmm. This wasn't, you know, to be read by other philosophers. This is to be read by other people in a more scientific field, mm -hmm. either looking at behavioral sciences from like a maybe sociological aspect or natural sciences of like how do we convey our messages and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It kind of boiled down to a kind of communication to me. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to communicate to these people, I have to use a framework that they understand. Yes. And it's this kind of strict framework of there's methods and there's like results and this is what we can conclude and this is what we can't conclude. And I think... I interpreted it as that was one of the new newer things for him was in order to have this thing that I can use to talk to other people or this, like I can communicate this information to other people. I have to also keep it in a framework. That's not what I've done before. Yeah, always. that's, that's a really good point. I think that also it's within what he was mentioning and, yeah. you know, he, he became into a different field where he was going to work with different people and not just philosophers of the same area that he he was trained on and mm -hmm. that he, like we always say that involves learning new communication methods and trying to find the words that are shared and all these topics which is in itself very striking right that you need to yeah. to, to put this into the whole equation it's not just like doing your research you have to kind of you have to make it fit into like a broader thing yeah simply yeah with that it was very very cool to work with him again and i'm yeah. really looking forward to to see if he actually after his phd continues working in this topic or maybe he moves mm -hmm. into something different we'll see and good luck to him for his defense <laughs> yes maybe when you're listening to this is if after the end of march maybe he's already dr Mikko Angelotti. <laughs> <laughs> we, we moved now to the news we hope you enjoyed the interview Welcome to this new section. For this 26th episode, we are not going to bring to you any particular new studies or research articles from this past month, but we have decided to touch upon a particular topic that we think is very relevant for the time we're living in, and it also ties to, of course, AMR and uh, resistance in a way. We want to talk about vaccines and vaccines compared to antibiotics in a way. We found recently a popular news article that was posing the questions, why do we find 
that so many bacteria become resistant to antibiotics, but we don't see so much resistance to vaccines. And I thought, just when I saw that title, that it was very interesting, I thought like, yeah, like, why is this the case? Why have we been using vaccines and some of the same vaccines for decades and doesn't seem to be resistant to those vaccines but we get a new antibiotic in the market and within a few years we already have a spread resistant to it. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how vaccines can help in the quest against antibiotic resistance and we're not going to really dwell so much into the particularities of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine but we might also mention it sideways because of course we are living in, uh, in days of coronavirus and of course the reason why we're talking about vaccines is also because vaccines are in everyone's mouth right now. So this popular news article that was just recently published, uh, we leave it in the show notes below, is actually based on an article that was published uh, back in 2017, a research article. You also have the link in the show notes. And this article, the authors actually propose that is the first time that someone has scientifically laid out the reasons why there's no resistance to vaccines, but there is so much resistance to antibiotics. So we wanted to just summarize a little bit why the authors think that is. Um, can you bring to us what the main results of the of the study are? Yeah, so first I just want to clarify that the title is Why Does Drug Resistance Readily Evolve But Vaccine Resistance Does Not? So it's not necessarily the vaccine resistance doesn't evolve. It's just we don't see this problem that we have with the AMR that it kind of, it comes too fast, too soon. We can't really keep up. This is more of a um, perspective piece. It's not really a research piece. So it's not a lot of active data if we put it that, but it's more of like putting everything in perspective and looking at the, the entirety of it. But what they find generally is, I mean, when you think about how vaccines work compared to how antibacterial, for example, drugs work, it has to do a lot with like the actual kind of intrinsic aspects of these things. A vaccine is meant to be given before you get sick. It's mm-hmm. prophylactic, meaning that you get it in advance to prevent somebody from getting sick. Mm-hmm. They often not only prevent you from like getting the disease, but they prevent you from getting infected at all, mm-hmm. which means that you would then also not transmit it. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of reducing the amount of its bacterial or viral infection either way. You're reducing its prevalence at all. And the way that resistance occurs is largely like kind of a numbers game. I mean, it's going to occur if you have enough of something. So when you're using antibiotics or antivirals or antifungals, you're treating an already existing infection, meaning that there's already, let's say, a lot of whatever you're trying to treat. Yeah, so... I think there's a point here to mention that um, when a pathogen becomes resistant to either a vaccine or any any kind of agent that is used to kill it, mm-hmm. um, the resistance happens because there are changes in the genetic material of those bacteria. These, yes. these changes happen randomly when the bacteria are dividing. So mm-hmm. the difference here, as you were mentioning, is when we are using a therapeutic drug that would like would be the antibiotics, you are using this antibiotic when you have already an established infection that started from, let's say, uh, a small amount of those pathogens that they started dividing in the body. And then when they get to a specific amount, then they start showing symptoms and then is when it gets treated. You have there a lot of pathogens that have been dividing and yeah. by a numbers game you might have some that already gotten these changes that because of chance they make the bacteria resistant to mm-hmm. the antibiotic 
Whereas when you use vaccines, as you were saying, because it's used as a prophylactic, then it works at the beginning of when those pathogens enter the body. So yeah. there is no time for them to divide and potentially acquire these changes that might make them resistant. So that's how that actually works. Sorry, just to add on to that, that there's also the aspect of less or no transmission, meaning that even if there is some resistance in that patient developing spontaneously, it just happens to happen it's much less likely to go to somebody else, meaning yeah. it's still going to be a dead end. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's also important. Usually it has to be like a lot of virus for the body not to be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. Small amounts, usually the body can handle. So if it's just one, maybe that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But if it's more and spreads, that's where the problem lies. So that's the first reason why antibiotics or therapeutic drugs are more readily evolving resistant than yes. uh, prophylactic or vaccines mm -hmm. the other reason is because of how they actually work like in what yeah. part of the target they work so antibiotics generally are very very precise so they work by targeting a specific part that is essential to the bacterial growth in a sense mm -hmm. that means that if any changes in the genetic material will modify that target then you already have a bacteria that can be resistant to an antibiotic. Yeah. Whereas the vaccine, how vaccines work in general, is that you give a little, little part of that pathogen to the body. So the body gets trained to recognize that little part. And then when that part from the real pathogen presents itself, then it can fight against it with the immune system. The thing is that that little part that is included in the vaccines generally is not a very, 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 very small part. And it's also, let's say, a part that has many different uh, sides of the surface. Imagine a puzzle piece, right? Every side of the yeah. puzzle piece looks different. So you are giving the body this puzzle piece that has different sides, and then the body will make a fighting part for each one of these sides. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That means that if by any chance there is a change in the genetic material that will change one of these sides, you still have other sides that are intact and they are unchanged and that the body can target and, and use uh, to get rid of the pathogen. Mm -hmm. So this is called the different multiplicity of targets. That means that generally antibiotics have only one target, whereas the pieces used in vaccines have different targets. Mm -hmm. And that's also why it would be less easy to get resistance against a vaccine than an antibiotic. This is very important because for some of the bacterial and viral diseases, like it could be tuberculosis or HIV, there are therapeutic drugs against that if you use them alone, you can get resistance to them. Like if you use only one antiviral for HIV and, and therapeutic or one anti-tuberculosis drug, you might get mm -hmm. resistance to it. But if you do a cocktail of different drugs, you reduce the chances of this resistance to emerge and to spread. For HIV now, it's very common that everybody gets actually a multiretroviral drug cocktail. And for tuberculosis, that's also quite common to do because it's been already shown if you only use one, you're going to get resistant to it and it's a big, big problem. Yeah. So I think this combination therapy kind of mimics a little bit what the multiplicity of targets that does an intrinsic characteristics of how vaccines work. 
And yeah. they mentioned it in the, in the article as well. But the to bring in there, the, the vaccines work that way and it's kind of natural. You're using your immune system to create these building blocks kind of, but you're not introducing that much into the system. Mm-hmm. But if you have to give a combination therapy, these things tend to be very rough on the body. I mean, we've science working on this have greatly improved these treatments, but they're still tough, long treatments that there's always side effects and you're adding on side effects the more drugs you take. So it's there's definitely an advantage mm-hmm. to this system of vaccines. And there's many other aspects that the authors brought up, but we kind of just want to focus on these primary ones and uh, then kind of turn to, well, how can we use vaccines to fight antimicrobial resistance? Mm-hmm. So of course, I mean, if you can prevent an infection, then you don't need to treat with antibiotics, whatever it is. I mean, that we there's some data that shows that flu shots, for example, even though that's a virus, for one part, they prevent bacterial infections afterwards. So you can get pneumonia after the flu caused by bacteria. You don't have to treat that if you never get the flu and you never get the pneumonia. But also you don't mistreat. So if something that is a virus doesn't get treated with antibiotics because you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. There's also recently more successful cases where you see bacterial infections being prevented with vaccines. For example, there's a pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, that works very well. And it's been updated. I mean, we saw some issues with different serotypes, like different types of the pneumococcus bacteria taking over, but they've managed to add more serotypes to an updated vaccine. So they kind of took care of that problem. So this is one of those cases where it's not really resistance. It's um, They bring that up in these papers as well, but it's the non-targeted bacteria can be added in later if that becomes a problem and you can kind of catch up. There's not this inability to catch up that we kind of have with antibacterials at least. But there's also some other difficulties if you're trying to target resistant bacteria. Some of these bacteria are not in and of themselves the problem. It's the fact that they're resistant and in the wrong place and causing an infection. So most people recognize E. coli, for example. Uh, it's a common um, bacteria that's in our gut, and it's it's usually good. There's usually not a problem. E. coli definitely can cause serious infections, bloodstream infections and other things like that, if they end up in the wrong place and they happen to carry certain traits that make them really pathogenic, so able to make you really sick. But on top of that, they can also be resistant. So there's this difficulty of, okay, we want to target those E. coli that are causing this infection, that are doing this problem and that are resistant. We don't really want to affect the ones in your gut that are doing good things, that are helping you. So it's a bit of a challenge. And there's also a challenge of you know, we have to be able to study this. We have to be able to say that the vaccine is efficient. Unfortunately, the vaccine has to be able to make money for the people that are providing it. So if this is mainly a disease that causes problems in a part of the world where there's not a lot of funding for vaccines, then the companies might not produce it, even though it would be a good vaccine. And it's, it comes back to this decoupling from sales kind of arguments that, I mean, let's we're not trying to demonize any pharmaceutical companies, but there's an issue there. And I mean, it's a very diverse thing, but this could definitely be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. We can develop more vaccines towards bacterial infections, prevent them from ever occurring. And then you prevent the use of antibiotics being necessary Mm -hmm. until it's really necessary. So in that way, vaccines can be kind of part of the solution here where we develop new vaccines with the existing methods that we have to be able to prevent these bacterial infections from ever happening. And if we kind of tie in covid now with the new SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, here we've seen a whole new technology being used. So the mRNA vaccines, that might be a really useful way to explore, to look into how to solve some of these problems with how do we target certain bacteria, not others? What is efficient? What is not? And even if we can't prevent infections, Mm -hmm. we can minimize the disease. So maybe it's not so severe. Maybe we don't have to treat so long. Maybe we don't have to use the more 
last line in a biotics anymore and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of comes down to, you know, multi-layers of it's better if people just don't get sick. <laughs> if we don't have to treat people in the beginning, then we don't have to use as many antibiotics. I personally think that the vaccines, the development of vaccines, it's a really important aspect of having a brighter future when it comes to antibiotic resistance. Both Absolutely. for what you were mentioning about if you reduce viral infections that might be mistaken by bacterial infections, you are reducing the misuse of antibiotics there, but also making people less sick, helping people like use their own immune system to get rid of infections before they actually need to be treated. Uh, there is a lot of potential here to actually help a lot, but I find that there is a bit of a problem when it comes economically as well and yeah. how certain parts of the world are most and badly hit by antibiotic resistance. And if they already have problems with the access to antibiotics, they are also going to have problems with access to vaccines. And yeah. that just keeps showing the inequality of the world we live in and how mm. there are much more base layer problems that need to be fixed in order to be able to fix this particular problem of antibiotic resistance. And it's very clear right now in the situation we're in. I mean, there are parts of the world where vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 have been delivered, albeit slowly, and the vaccination program is ongoing. And there are parts of the world that haven't even gotten to get started yet because there's nothing available. And it's too expensive, the ones that are out there. And it's just not and the infrastructure needed to be able to provide these more complex mm-hmm. vaccines is also just not realistic. I think we mentioned it perhaps five months ago, six months ago, when mm-hmm. we were talking like that this pandemic and specifically now the rollout of vaccinations would actually show up all mm-hmm. the problems that there is with infrastructure, with connection, with availability of resources. With, it's just... Yeah. And emphasize the solution of everyone is healthier if we improve the health of people around the world. I mean, it doesn't have to be your neighbor. But if this coronavirus lives continuously in parts of the world where we haven't been able to get vaccines, where we haven't been able to get treatments and that sort of thing, it will keep coming back to us. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be treated as a global issue. I have to say that there is the latest episode of uh, John Oliver's show in the U.S., it's actually already available in uh, in YouTube. Uh, he it's about the next pandemic. So he just make, basically makes a point of like why pandemics is something that is going to happen and it's going to happen more often because of the world we live in and how life is. So it's just like laying out the the possible solutions of how we can work on to reduce this. Yeah, but. We have to have in mind that, yeah, this situation is is not unique. I don't think mm-hmm. what has happened with coronavirus is something unique. I think it's just these different characteristics have come together in one instance, but it's actually showing up the problems that we have in the world that had led us to this point. And if we don't fix those, this is going to happen again for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to end on a note also of we're not trying to scare anybody with that resistance can develop. And I know it's been a lot in the news about if certain variants, the coronavirus can are still uh, able to be prevented by, by certain vaccines. Uh, at least in this popular news article, they do reference that the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer are still highly functional and all this stuff. And this is a developing problem. So of course, there may be cases that we heard something about a South African variant that maybe isn't able to be prevented by certain of the vaccines, but there are other vaccines. So this is one of the things I remember in the beginning of like the pandemic we were talking about oh which vaccine is going to win and there was a discussion of 
it's not going to be one we need several we need a lot we need different kinds we need different yeah. everything and this is kind of emphasizing that they're like okay maybe this one doesn't work but you know what this one does <laughs> so we're going to go for this one and it's this kind of multiplicity thing that we talked about before just in a more macro level mm-hmm. indeed that's a good point to end up this uh update and as we said we leave everything in the show notes there is this popular news article there is the article that is based on from 2017 and also we are leaving you a very recent review from 4th of february this year in nature uh, journal which is about how vaccines can actually help on the amr problem it's very Mm. in-depth and includes very concrete examples and including the issues with some of these bacteria so it's a very good read if you're interested that's very cool Great. So with this, we thank you for being with us one more month and we hope to have you back with us uh, in the beginning of April already. Spring coming up. Exciting. See you soon. <laughs> Bye. See you. For more information about the Upsal Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.